0: My name's Karma. I'm Umair. You're tuning into Oats for Breakfast.
1: Oats for Breakfast is a founding member of the Harbinger Media Network, which brings together left-wing podcasts from across Canada. Other podcasts on the network include The Progress Report and 49th Parahel. You can learn more about Harbinger and the podcasts that are a part of the network by going to harbingermedianetwork.com.
0: On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be chatting with Charlie Demers about his latest novel, Primary Obsessions. And we'll also be talking about mental health, which is um, a major theme in the novel.
1: Charlie Demers is an author, comedian, actor, playwright, screenwriter, and political activist. Charlie often makes appearances on the CBC radio comedy show, The Debaters. You can subscribe to his latest essays and his weekly podcast at charliedemers.substack.com. We're going to be chatting with him about "Primary Obsessions," a novel about a psychologist who solves mental health problems by day and tries to solve a murder mystery by night. Welcome back to Oats for Breakfast, Charlie.
2: Thanks so much for having me back, and and hopefully this time I'll I'll sound like me, uh, like I have a better microphone now. I I uh, the last time I was on there was a weird sort of uh, it sounded like I was. Um, like testifying against the mob or big tobacco or something like there was a voice disguising technology of uh,
1: you know what that was totally an issue on uh, on this end on my end because I I had gotten a new recorder and I just hadn't figured out
2: I think it was me I was I had a broken mic I was using a broken mic at the time so I feel like okay I feel like it was my error so hopefully this is the uh, you know I'm I'm free and clear and and uh, sound like the real the real me. Do you want to know something? which is no treat,
1: but Do you want to know something else? You were the first person that came on the podcast remotely. Oh, and this was what, like last year in February, I guess so. And since then, uh, that's become the permanent state of things. <laughs> so maybe this having you back on will break the curse.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, Justin Trudeau just announced domestic vaccine production today. You know clearly. Uh, you know I, um, I can bookend the pandemic era. It's all finished. We were announcing it, the, breaking the story here on Oats for Breakfast. You can get back out and hug loved ones responsibly. <laughs> don't do that. Actually, sorry. I, I, I don't want. I don't actually want to orient you to a new uh, anti-mask uh, uh, demographic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not right away. Uh, Karma, do you want to start us off?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying that I really, really enjoyed the book. Well, thank I read you. A lot. I don't really read a lot of fiction. And when I got into this, I was like, wow, I need to read more fiction because I really, <laughs> really enjoyed it. And it typically takes me quite a while to finish a book, but it took me like a week. And I just, you know, I was really excited to read it. Um, if you can give us a little bit of, you know, just your your background, what what inspired you to write the book, kind of the process that you went through in terms of why you decided to also to to explore mental health in the way that you did in the book, because it's it's quite a unique way, right? It's uh, it isn't a, a typical, I think, exploration of mental health.
2: I'm really glad that you enjoyed the book, and I, and and uh, I I appreciate the the very kind words. I've also been really struck by, uh, you know, I've r- written a few books at this point, and and what's been really neat is that I've heard back from people for in in relation to this book people in my life who I, I, ha- I haven't gotten necessarily uh, feedback from on, on uh, other books I've, I've written. And, and so it, it is, it's, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of book uh, for me as well uh, in terms of writing a sort of piece of, uh, I guess, what's known uh, somewhat derisively as genre fiction, but it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun to write. And uh, it's been really neat getting to uh, see the reaction from, from people. Uh, the, the idea basically was to write a story from from within a world that that i knew well and uh, i've been really trying in uh pieces of uh fiction and and you know you know sort of more purely creative work that i've been doing over the last few years to really try and tell stories uh that uh, and And not from a kind of like standpoint epistemology of you know staying in my lane or anything uh, but uh just just trying to tell stories that will be in, enriched by um, by coming from a place that that I know uh particularly well or 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 that that I've spent a lot of time in and and uh, i've I've been uh, seeing uh, a psychologist in the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy world uh, in fact, the psychologist who is the inspiration for um, Dr. Anik Boudreau, who is the the, the main character of, of Primary Obsessions. I've been seeing uh, that psychologist for close to 17 years now. Um, I started seeing her actually as, as part of a, uh, a set of clinical trials at uh, the UBC Anxiety Clinic when I was in my early 20s. And that's always been very important for me uh, because I gave me access to the gold standard of treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder uh, at a time in my life when I, I definitely could not have afforded that. And uh, Umer, in your um, introduction, you made the distinction between, or you, you, you correctly uh, introduced the book as being about psychology. And if you look at any of the reviews and the, any of the, the media stuff, like they, the slippage between psychology and psychiatry is, is all over the place. People refer to it as, as being about a psychiatrist. And of course, psychiatry now which is mostly about pharmacology and mostly about uh meds um which i'm not anti-meds at all but um that's often covered by um public health care but uh, psychology uh, isn't, and, and is often a very uh, inaccessible inaccessible thing but uh, i was able to um get it uh, as a young man with with no money uh, as a part of these uh, clinical trials and so um the time that I had spent with that psychologist uh, over the years, I just felt had uh, kind of prepared me to, to to share a story that could get into some pretty um, intimate places. So the result was basically to, I mean, in some ways, do a kind of um, wish fulfillment or fantasy story about this psychologist you know, saving uh, you know a, a, an imaginary version of of the young me in 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 a lot of ways. Uh, the the Sanjay character, uh, the character who 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 has um, obsessive compulsive disorder and and who has been um, arrested in the story for for the murder of his roommate. You know in in a lot of ways he's he's suffering in the in the ways that that i was um when i first started seeing uh you know my dr boudreau and and um so the story is is really just about uh the way that she comes in to the rescue in in uh uh, uh you know on a number of different levels because that was a pretty sp- sprawling um answer to that question I, i'm sorry
1: I don't know how best to do this. We've, we have talked to one other person about a novel and it's always hard to talk about the story. And obviously in this one, this is especially, you know, you don't want to spoil anything because it's a real page turner. Right. Um, but maybe it'd be helpful to lay out a little bit and you've already started doing this a little bit more of the plot for our listeners.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, The story centers around the uh, uh, murder arrest of uh, a a patient uh, named Sanjay who um, suffers from a form of obsessive compulsive disorder called primary obsessions, uh, which is the subset of OCD that gives the book its title. Uh, Primary obsessions OCD is driven by um, repeated unwanted intrusive thoughts. And uh, they typically fall into, um, you know, broad um, categories, but uh, usually they are just, um, they're very disturbing, very hard to deal with. And so Sanjay is, is beset by very violent, disturbing images. And so he's working with Dr. Boudreau uh, on treating um, his, his OCD. Um, but his roommate is murdered. And uh, when the police... Uh, come to the scene. They find his cognitive behavioral therapy journal, in which he is keeping a record of some of these thoughts. Uh, and uh, the the police kind of um, put two and two together and and get five, as it were. And and uh, he uh, is arrested. The problem is Sanjay, like many people with with OCD, feels that he is just uh, that he deserves to be caught. Um, one thing that happens with Primary obsessions, OCD, is the the people who have it feel like they present a danger to society. Um, that, that that they're monsters. That that there's something uh, wrong, deeply wrong, with them, and that's why they're having these these thoughts. And uh, um, actually, I, w- I was talking to my uh, psychologist last week, and she told me about you know that that uh, a, like a, a heartbreaking incident where um, uh, with that pro- with that. Trial at, at, at UBC uh, about somebody you know they were trying to recruit patients um, to participate, and so they'd say, "Do you have thoughts like this? You know, are you are you are you having these kinds of challenges?" And this person called in to the clinic, you know, to inquire about the the, the trials. And asked if this was something like um, the bait car program. I don't know if you guys have bait cars in Ontario, but in BC, the bait car program is uh, the, the police set up a car to look particularly attractive to car thieves so that they try to steal it and then uh, and thereby um, set themselves up. So that this person who was suffering from OCD was so convinced that he was this dangerous pathological person. He, he thought that this whole, uh, clinical trial was actually just an elaborate ruse to try and basically ensnare dangerous people, um, to, to get them off, off the streets. So basically, um, Sanjay, uh, the, the character who's arrested in, in the story won't come to his own defense and, uh, Dr. Boudreau, who begins to realize that she's not being called in by his legal team to clear things up, uh, but realizing as well that she has to respect doctor-patient uh, confidentiality, uh, begins uh, sort of getting drawn into poking around and and trying to find out what really happened.
0: Yeah, I mean the premise is uh, is very very exciting. Like when I realized what was going on when I was reading the book, I was like, oh my god, this is <laughs> this is going to get really really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I thought it was a really a really interesting way to explore um, OCD. I mean, I was talking, me and Omer were talking about this, is like, I don't think I ever really understood what OCD is. Like, I never, right. uh, beyond the kind of typical depictions of what it is, right, that we that we see popularized, um, I didn't really have a good idea. And this, it, it almost, I don't know if, if Omer, you, you share this too, but I almost felt like I don't have OCD, but that i could relate to it in some ways just by by means of having like anxiety generally like i could see it just made it i don't know i feel like i guess uh less of like a very like um you know far away un- misunderstood or like not understood uh, I should yeah say, like uh mental illness and, and it made it i guess just by by virtue of understanding it it makes it uh much you can relate to it a bit more and understand uh the suffering that someone is going through when they have OCD.
1: well yeah I mean, you kind of, sort of lay that out in the the book as well, and that like most people have thoughts that they don't want to have, you know, sometimes very violent thoughts, and mm-hmm. um, but most of us can dissociate ourselves from those thoughts, whereas someone with OCD uh, will believe that that's that's who they are.
2: Yeah, so it's actually um, the 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 basic. Difference between someone with OCD uh, or, or, or and, and or specifically primary obsessions OCD and someone who doesn't have it is is not the thoughts. It's it's uh, the interpretation, which um, it, you know is actually this kind of, in some ways, this kind of beautiful human thing that, it, that it's that it really is about us having to think through what we're experiencing and 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 finding meaning right and and so we have these brains that just run through all sorts of different experiments uh just h- hundreds and thousands of them in in the in the course uh of a day and and most of us uh, most of us I think the word you chose Umar, is is spot on where we're able to dissociate ourselves from uh, you know what is you know essentially mental uh garbage and what happens with people with primary obsessions is that an, an error of interpretation is made. They have this—they—they they have this thought of, oh, you know, what what if I pulled the car into oncoming traffic right now, or you know, what if I pushed somebody off the subway platform, or or you know, this—you know—thought that comes in from out of left field. And rather than kind of, you know, laughing it off or, or just thinking, well, you know, I'm, I don't want to do that. So uh, clearly it's, it, you know, it doesn't say anything about me or if anything, if it says anything about me, it's that I am not the kind of person who does that kind of thing. Um, it becomes worrisome to them that that, it, that, they're, that they're being exposed to some sort of real truth uh, about themselves. And then that leads to a, a kind of introspection that is started off on a completely wrong foot. And the problem is it's then tied in uh, exactly uh, karma, as you said, into the, the same software as anxiety. Um, and so it, it, it then gets looped into the fight or flight uh, circuitry uh, of, of the human mind. So we are, uh, hardwired to scan our surroundings, uh, for threats. And, uh, the way that we confirm, um, the absence of threat is by searching for the presence of threat. So if you're out in the forest and you want to make sure there's no bear, you look for a bear, uh, and then in not finding one, you confirm the absence. The problem is if the threat that you're looking for is a thought, then you can always produce the thought. There is no absence to confirm because you go, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this thought. Is Am I having those thoughts again? And then your brain goes, you mean this one, this thought? And then, you know, that is just this endless, um, th- this endless loop. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, wh- one of the things that uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to sort of write this Book and, and one of the things that I sort of planted in to the plot as well uh, is a sort of uh, social media aspect of, of or it takes on a sort of life of its own uh, when details of the story sort of come out on, on Facebook in a, in a sort of viral post, um, because I just feel like we've also sort of entered this era that uh, I can't imagine if if I if I had been living through as as a young person with with OCD this in this sort of endless uh, you know self recriminating introspection and and just you know convinced that I was a monster and 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 just trying to to come to grips with with all of that um, if I had been living in this like kind of hysterical social media world. I'm, you know, I don't know that I would have made it. It's it's and so I I wanted as well to write a story um set in that set in that universe and and to to have a hero who was the sort of the cool-headed person who who understood what was really happening in the sort of crucible of 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 all of that kind of insanity as well.
1: I like that you really you know, you set it up in a very contemporary way. There's a lot of things that you're dealing with in you know, one of the things you tackle is the uh, political correctness in the discussions about mental health, and Dr. Boudreaux is often just completely dissatisfied by what the what that discourse is like. Whereas on the one hand, you know, people are cast aside, and on the other hand, I guess I don't know if this is on the left where the level of discourse tries to be very politically correct, but also completely misses the mark. You know, you're really trying to grapple with things, and not that you. You're not always solving the issue, right? It's I guess it, that's part of dealing with it in a real-world scenario is that you don't always have the answer. Um, but I also wanted to say, um, and I don't know if this is something you you'd agree with, but I think uh, Doctor Boudreau, um, and I'm I'm speaking for from someone with a little bit of experience, uh, Doctor Boudreau might have ADD.
2: I I had not uh, I had not thought about that going in, but this is. Interesting for me to know going into, uh, you know, because I'm I'm writing the sequel right now. So I so, school me on this.
1: Well, the main thing is the the mugs that she keeps losing.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: But then there's also the irritability. Uh, you know, there's the lack of sleep at times. But uh, I mean, you could flesh it out if you wanted. Yeah. Yeah, like adult diagnosis of ADD is uh, increasingly becoming common because originally, right, it was just thought about as like hyperactive boys. It's true. But yeah, no, I I this is something that I've had to come to terms with recently. I'm I'm like dealing with this right now.
2: Wow. Yeah, it's a uh, w- w- a couple of things on on what you just said. I mean, because I I feel like just, just in terms of the, on the one hand, like the, the political correctness, and then on the other hand, the just sort of uh, cruelty of the world as it is and and the desire to want to address the cruelty and then the the insufficiency of the political correctness to, to do it. I feel like the, the mental health conversation is one of the most, um, you know, efflorescent examples of just the total shortcomings of of this liberal idea that um, just through more good conversation we can solve every problem that faces us. Like, you no, know, what what's what's necessary to solve the mental health problem is not. Uh, let me let me step back a, a minute. The only conversation anyone is interested in having about mental health in this this Country is destigmatization, and destigmatization is very important. Like to give you a sense of of how much sort of stigma and shame comes along with with these kinds of intrusive thoughts or this sort of. Before I was diagnosed with OCD, and before I knew exactly what was going on, but but started to have like like a feeling. This was you know kind of pre. Um, not pre-internet, obviously, but but pre, certainly pre-social media, pre uh, pre extreme onlineness. Like this was, um, you know, this would have been, uh, I guess, maybe two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand two. Somebody wrote a piece in the in the in the Globe and Mail about uh, primary obsessions, OCD. A, a, a writer who was talking about uh, how he was at the barber and couldn't get the idea out of his head of taking the scissors out of the barbicide and stabbing the barber in the neck with them. Um, and it, it, he wrote about OCD and his experience of OCD. And I, I cut this article out of the newspaper and just carried it around with me. Like I just had it in my wallet as this, almost like a talisman of just like the, this was like a beacon in the night. Um, so, so the the stigma is real and destigmatization is a is a real and necessary step in the conversation, but liberals just that's where they want to end it, or Bell Media that's where they just they want to end the conversation, in the same way as liberals and and these multimedia uh, m- companies want want to end the conversation around uh, racism or or sexism or, or gender discrimination around you know, good conversations and, and thinking the right thoughts and, and you know, hashtag doing better um, as long as doing better doesn't actually involve doing anything that costs money or changes the power relations in, involved in workplaces or, or the economy. Like what people with mental health uh, issues need, what people mental illness need is first of all a, an environment in which they can talk about what's happening to them and, and not be, you know, not be afraid to do that, but they also need access to the best care available uh, without regard for price, you know, rinse and repeat. Like, like that's, that's the most important component is that second part is, is to be able to go see the doctor who, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, I can pay for it now, I wouldn't have been able to for any of the years when it was saving my life. That thought keeps me up at night because I know that there are 20-year-old versions of me in 2001 um, living in 2021 who aren't going to clinical trials where they're getting free cognitive behavioral therapy and and they can't pay $225 a session. They don't have union contracts that get them, um, uh, you know, coverage, coverage where, where they have it. So, yeah, I mean, my my hope in in sort of addressing the inadequacy of of those kinds of frames um, uh, on on as you say on on quote unquote both sides is is uh, you know was something that I was hoping to do not in that kind of hamfisted way where it's like the novel is is just a piece of agitprop, uh, but but something that that I did uh, want to uh, and and something that is true to the to the um, the inspiration for from the real life uh, Doctor Boudreaux. Uh, as for the ADHD um, diagnosis, that's um, that's potentially very compelling, and I, 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 you know, I, I don't know if you, I would get like full co-author billing on on future installments, but like certainly, certainly in the acknowledgments pages, if that if that ever becomes like an official, uh, you know, canon character trait.
1: Well, and I can tell you the other thing you can tie into this is that. Uh... You know for the moment uh dr Boudreau is not really convinced about uh, meditation or or i guess you call it mindfulness mm-hmm. but uh as someone with a d d it it would definitely help her
2: yes yeah yeah so I, I mindfulness has been very um has been very helpful for me and and has been a big um uh part of uh and 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 so uh, uh, so cognitive behavioral therapy is is great for obsessive compulsive disorder. And then, uh, there are like, I mean, there's various, th- various levers that get pulled for various things. And, and, um, uh, I think, you know, mindfulness is, it can be definitely also part of, of OCD treatment as well. But I think mindfulness is, um, I, I hope that the baby does not get thrown out with the bathwater in terms of the criticisms of mindfulness that are, um, cause some people are, uh, like you, you read some criticisms from the left of of the whole like sort of mindfulness industry and stuff. And I mean, it's good to have the blinders off about about this stuff, but then also don't don't burn it all down to the ground because there's there is some really really good stuff in there.
1: Yeah, Karma and I were actually chatting about this exact thing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, we were. I mean, I was telling Omer that I have a very negative perception of mindfulness, just because in university, whenever like people talk about mental health and resources and stuff, people would just be like, you know, put like a mindfulness event together, put it on a poster and be like, you know, there we go. (laughs) We've solved (laughs) it. But then, yeah, yeah. But then Amir was telling me that it's been really helping him out. And uh, I mean, I was like, you gotta, you gotta give me some tips here. Cause this, (laughs) maybe, maybe I shouldn't have just been so dismissive.
2: It's so, it's such a f- hard and fine line to walk. About, I mean, the way that capitalism distorts and perverts these real and enriching human uh, interactions and human. I mean, there there are some parts of our lives where it's so we're we're just able to roll with it a lot more a lot more easily, right? Like we all we all know how messed up food production is, right? Like uh, the, every input um, along the industrial, ch- like the way the food is grown, the way the animals are slaughtered, the way the the uh, the way the, uh, people in restaurants are, are worked, the way the delivery drivers, are, you know, e- at every level, it's totally messed up. And yet, we also know that when we sit down to eat with our families or eat with our friends, there is this deeply spiritually enriching communal, um, moment that is like from, from whatever sort of either s- secular or, or otherwise, um, standpoint is sacred. And we, we can see the way that sort of capitalism is sort of corrosively eating around the edges of that without kind of, uh, uh losing that, that core of, of beauty. Um, and, but it becomes harder with with something like something like mindfulness uh, comes along, and it gets packaged as you know apps, and it gets packaged as you know this conveniently uh, affordable alternative to uh, care that would otherwise cost a lot or or, or whatever, it, it suddenly it's being sold to us as, as something that will allow us to be more effective workers, something that can keep us plugged into this matrix uh, for, for longer hours and lower wages. It's right to be suspicious and skeptical and resistant of all of those elements, while at the same time, like open to these very genuine possibilities rooted in real human learning and you know that are that are coming to us through these like ref- in these f- refracted and and broken ways because of the because of the system that we live in but but uh, you know one of the things that I really hoped to do with the book was to just to, to kind of I guess show the beauty or speak to the beauty of a of a human relationship that was not that's not that's not a friendship that's not a family relationship. Uh, You know, that's a that's a different kind of relationship, Um, you know, in this case, the relationship between a patient and her um, uh, or or a doctor and her patient and and just sort of show that those kinds of human connections are, I mean, they're all around us. They're constitutive of our very being and and uh, and they can they can be very uh, beautiful.
0: Well, you know, speaking of actually, that's a, uh, provides a good segue for something I was about to ask about when I was reading the book, I really write like, like reading books that are set in Canada, even if, you know, we live in Toronto mm-hmm. and I know it was set in Vancouver, but just because I, I it just feels nice that I can like understand and relate to all the things in it. Um, right. and it was just like, I find myself upset sometimes because, you know, we're, we're currently locked down. Uh, we can't really do much. We can mm-hmm. we can't really casually go to a bar or interact. And obviously, like throughout the book, you know, Dr. Boudreaux goes and meets with people in bars and yeah. does just normal things that I really took for granted. And I just I found myself really missing it when I was reading the book and really enjoying reading about it and like, you know, imagining what life would be like once once we get back to it. And it just got me thinking about just generally like the alienation and isolation in which we're, we're under more and more nowadays, uh, pandemic or not pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has really kind of uh, pushed the gas pedal on, on some of those tendencies in yeah. society, right? But that's just generally been the case. And uh, what are your thoughts on that and and mental health in general and how uh, kind of the root causes, right, I guess, if, if for lack of a better term?
2: Uh, that's a really great question. And I, I, yeah, I feel like we should just general rule in society is like, anything that during the pandemic was like, hey, this is good. This was actually better during the pandemic, we should get rid of afterwards. Like anything for that found that it was boom times during the pandemic, we just go, okay, so that's obviously bad, right? So we'll just get rid of that as soon as we're on the other side of it. So social media, Amazon, any like anything that was like bumped up by covid. I mean, I guess, you know, masks, you guys are okay, you, we needed you like and I and I guess to a certain extent people needed uh the various internet platforms and, and and stuff. Um but yeah, it's 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 really tough. I mean, it's it's uh I'm also, you know, a stand-up comedian which which means that um a big part of my both my sort of artistic expression and uh um practice as well as my like way of making my living uh, is by getting into a room with large numbers of you know droplet producing people and trying to make them laugh and and being you know sort of squeezed into a sort of low ceiling space with them and and so it's been really really um it's been really hard. And and like you say, it's anytime you're engaging any kind of cultural product from before the pandemic, where the ease of just, you know, going over to someone's house for, um, you know, I was watching a movie with my wife last night and, and a character goes over to somebody's house for Thanksgiving dinner and like tells someone on the way, they're like, Oh, it's just a small get together. Um, you know, we're just doing a small thing. And it's like, just that, that phrase was so, heartbreakingly poignant like it was just like you have no idea this it's not small you don't know it it's gonna be small um and and that that desire to um to to connect with people and like and and I haven't I haven't been in an office with the real life Dr. Boudreau in almost a year like I've only seen her over FaceTime and it's it's better than no therapy, but it's not as good for sure. So, I mean, you know, I've read some stuff that suggests that the mental health fallout from COVID will be something like the mental health fallout from World War II, in the sense that we will be dealing for decades with the sort of offshoot stuff that we you know th- things that people didn't even realize were connected to World War 2 like i like when i was growing up uh, you know i was a little kid in the 80s and there were always serial killers right and so anything that's anything that's always around when you're a kid you just assume like oh that's just something that's always part of society like you know there's just and so you figure there's always a, a couple of serial killers like on the go and then you and then as i got older it's like well, what where did all the serial killers go? Like, and it was, and uh, some people have posited that a part of that. And, and, and I mean, uh, so, so there was like an undeniable uptick and, and it was about 40 years on from world war II And, you know, there's there's all kinds of, you know, materialist explanations, uh, you know, that uh, was the expansion of the highway system and people moving from small towns into cities and the uh, new anonymity and stuff like that. But a big part of it as well was uh, it was a, a generation of men who had been raised by fathers with PTSD after coming back from World War II, these undiagnosed, traumatized people who had raised their sons, you know, with with no sense of this pervasive mental illness that was reigning in their in their households. I mean, th- those are the kinds of knock-on effects. Like no nobody at the time was thinking, oh, there's all these serial killers in the late 1980s. That must be because of World War II. Like uh, so the the possible mental health effects from COVID, you know, will have to be thought of in those kinds of expansive terms. Um, now, the reason for optimism is that th- it's night and day, the difference between, you know, mental health thinking at, at the end of World War II and and where it is in, in 2021. I mean, nobody's, nobody's going to be trying to uh, figure out why some shell-shocked, you know, soldiers, you know, how is his, you know, mother issues lead to his PTSD? Like we we've made so many strides in the years since there are so many layers of society in which a a sort of mental health understanding or mental health sensitivity has been sort of metabolized uh, that I think, I think there will be a sensitivity to it. So, you know, in, in some, in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm very um, hopeful and I'm also hopeful that we will come back to the the post-pandemic times with a, a stronger understanding of the importance of those real connections and of... of I just... Anytime I'm in a conversation with someone who says like, you know, I think we'll just keep doing this on Zoom uh, at once we're all... I just feel... I just want to say like you are absolutely missing the point of like not that there's a point of this like you know we're all being taught a lesson or anything like that but if what you're taking away from 2020 and 2021 is hey we should do all school on zoom forever then you just there's no saving you like the takeaway needs to be this was awful We did it because we had to. It's great that we were able to do it, that despite four decades of atomization and individualization, we were still able to have some level of social response to uh, this absolute uh, emergency. The minute we can all be around each other again, we we just have to do it with a new sense of never again taking it for granted. I
0: really, really agree with that. Um, it's ridiculous how much we took certain things for granted. And, uh, you know, I, it just really got me thinking about mental health generally. Like, I, uh, you know, suffer from uh, anxiety mostly. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm doing, thankfully, a lot better now. Um, and I, I actually went through, you know, some uh, some CBT myself. And it really, really helped oh, with, wow. uh, with anxiety, especially, right? I uh, mm-hmm. it really... And you know, feelings of guilt and that kind of thing is was really at the core of it. So I could, I could really, you know, I understand why why CBT is extremely helpful. But now that, you know, I'm not, for example, overtly, you know, it's not like I'm not dysfunctionally anxious anymore, I guess you could say. The pandemic's gotten me thinking just generally about what made me anxious to begin with. Right. Like what was it that was like just riddle getting me riddled with anxiety? Um, yeah, and I I don't know. I guess it's just like I do wonder generally like now, you know, what do we, what do we think about when we think about a society that's, I don't know, that's, that's a healthy society, right? Like, yeah. like what kind of society would, would mean we're just healthier, happier human beings generally.
2: Right. Yeah. And in order to do that, there needs, you know, in, implicit to that is, is a question of what level of anxiety or despair or, or you know, what, what number of negative feelings should we all reasonably be feeling in response to the very despairing world that we that we do f- seem to be or not seem to be I mean that, w- that we are living in right like there is a point at which if if you looked out at the at the world right now and didn't feel a certain amount of anxiety there there's there'd be almost a level of uh, of aloofness in that 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 would almost be irresponsible and so you're you're just you're putting your finger right on the the very nub of, of of the question that for me is just absolutely in some ways the question that is what I mean not to get too highfalutin about it but it's it's kind of what it it is one of the existential questions right of of not only an individual human life but of social life in general right like to what extent do any of us when faced with a world brimming with suffering and cruelty and exploitation, to what extent can any of us reasonably acclimatize ourselves to a point where our life in that world won't be unbearable and superfluous suffering without detaching ourselves from, uh, from, from the suffering that that is going on. And, and, and also from, you know, honoring or speaking to, or, or trying to remedy our own suffering as, as well. And the thing that's, that's been so hard about this last year is, you know, the answer is almost always some form of connection, right? Like it's almost always the answer is some sort of loving or solidaristic, empathetic connection with, with other people. And it's one of the reasons that I, I feel like, you know, for, for socialists, like you really can't, um, you know, I've had this conversation with, um, oh, you know, a friend over the years, like you really can't be a misanthropic socialist. You, you, you can't, uh, you have to love people. Um, You can be irritated by them, you can be infuriated by them, but if you don't want the best for people, it doesn't work. It doesn't work as a political project, it doesn't work as a view of the world, it it doesn't make sense. And there is a a view of the the world and what will make it better um, that right now is is hinged almost completely on bad feelings. Uh, You know, um, getting one to Twitter. Primarily it's Twitter, I guess, but um, it happens everywhere. And just sort of filling ourselves with despairing, guilty, and prosecutorial uh, feelings about ourselves, about each other, and about the world. And, you know, life has turned into like this struggle session where people spend these whole chunks of their days on platforms where they are constantly told either how horrible they are or how horrible everybody else is and you know that that's part of what you know i i worried about you know when i when i when i think back to the the like 20 year old version of me who who literally you know needed to go to needed to go to a doctor to, to try and, and figure out like, you know, am I, am I, uh, you know, because I remember at one point I said to my, when I, when I thought, okay, maybe I should talk to my doctor about this. Cause it was like, either I have obsessive compulsive disorder or I'm the worst person who's ever lived. And so I, I still had enough sort of rational mind left to go like, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not the worst person who ever lived. So maybe I should, go talk to to the doctor but i mean it, you know it literally had reached that sort of um impasse I, you know i look at the 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 world today um people develop ocd worries about like uh sexual guilt about you know memories they have from childhood about like things where where they and another kid uh just just sort of like basic Childhood interactions that that have these sort of like playing doctor, like uh, you know proto sexuality, um, you know people people will take these memories that are absolutely fraught for them with with like deep sexual guilt that, that they have no idea are like totally universal experiences, and they've built up these these edifices of of moral self recrimination and and self-flagellation uh and you know i i don't know that somebody could get to a place of healing and and realizing that that they're normal in a world where you know like twitter is calling you know lena dunham a child molester because when she was seven she looked at her five-year-old sister's private parts like you know that that's that's insane that like that that's the level of the, you know, the society that that we're in. And I mean, that, that was like social media, whatever, five years ago, like we're, we're, we're eight dimensions of, of insanity further in now. So, yeah, I just, I just feel like um, the question you asked is, is so, so big. And I mean, in some ways, like it really is the, it's the work of a lifetime to answer at an individual level. But I also think like, (sighs) Every human tradition worthy of the name is pretty unanimous in pointing in the direction of the answer, which is almost always towards a sort of loving, understanding connection with other people.
1: And I think I remember uh, somewhere you you talking about this, Charlie, that, that you have to love people. You don't have to like them, but you have to love them.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah, Absolutely a lot of wisdom in that. That's not me. I mean I th- I think those are motown lyrics. Uh like I I th- that's Smokey Robinson. I don't like you but I love you.
1: You know on so so I I think uh we've kind of been talking a little bit about this but like people of our political persuasion there is a certain amount of skepticism uh the sense that you know it's it's sort of self-indulgent to go to therapy. It's certainly self-indulgent. I mean, you see this, you know, cause we see the kind of people who do these things, mm-hmm. you know, who shop at Whole Foods and they do yoga in the park and they meditate. Yep. They, they take care of their mental health and that kind of thing. And we think about that, like, we don't want to do that cause those fucking upper middle-class pricks are the kind of people who do that. Um, yep. Yeah, and so I do think there is this like internal hurdle to, to this kind of stuff that I, I know for myself, it, it took some time to overcome.
2: Yeah, the biggest mistake that w- we make on the radical left is in saying, the, the rich people have that, so that is bad, rather than they have that, so we demand it for everyone. And that is a totally pervasive. You see it right now, like people say, oh, only only rich people have presumption of innocence. only powerful people have freedom of speech the, you know th- those are um i think debatable uh statements uh obviously though they speak to a certain truth about the the power disparities that go into the realization of of presumption of innocence and and freedom of expression. it's totally wrong headed to this, draw from that the conclusion, therefore no free speech or no presumption of innocence. The the socialist demand is presumption of innocence for everyone, freedom of speech for everyone. That to me has always been the fundamental sort of operating principle of socialism is that liberalism can't deliver on its own promises. So we're here to put forward a political program that takes seriously what are in, in liberalism only are, are only potential um, as opposed to actualized freedoms and, and, and liberties. And I, and I feel like a something similar is at, at work in whether it's like the whole foods lunch or mental health treatment or meditation, or, I mean, just because rich people have it, doesn't mean it's indulgent. In fact, if rich people have it, that probably means you should have it too. Like they tend to have good stuff. Like that's that's the whole point of this system is so they can get the good shit. And, and I mean, it's, it's totally healthy to have a skepticism about the way this stuff gets framed and handed to us. And also to be skeptical about the way the stuff gets repackaged to us. I mean, in the same way that it's healthy to be skeptical about Uber telling you how to be anti-racist, but that doesn't mean that just because Uber is anti-racist, so then the the answer is for me to be racist. Like, it just means I'm not going to look to Uber for how to do it. I'm going to see and know that Uber's version of this is going to be this, the most venal, cynical, you know, instrumental version of this thing that is that is nevertheless very necessary. I mean it's it's like the whole thing with you know this year we've seen you know how much we need the pharmaceutical industry. Now that doesn't mean that the pharmaceutical industry is not as it's currently constituted, a predatory, profit-driven capitalist enterprise. Right. So then, you know, the mistake that, that gets made is is the you know no GMO tortilla chips. People go, well, let's we shouldn't take vaccines. Then, no, that's a, that's an idiotic uh, response to uh, to pharmaceutical companies being uh, corporations. What we say is, this is great. We've got all these, bro- you know, we take the 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 what what is meant to be like the with the sort of definitional, you know, kernel, the hard kernel of the of Marxist analysis, which is that uh, capitalism got us to here. So now we're going to take it and go to where it's a universalist, democratically accessible society. You know, we we, we take uh, the pharmaceutical industry, which has in the past year shown us that we have the human genius and potential and creativity and scientific knowledge and technology to produce, you know, vaccines that used to take uh, a decade in the span of, 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 t- of 10 months. You know, imagine what that kind of technology could do in a democratized, you know, socially owned and socially oriented way. That's how I feel about liberal democratic rights. And that's how I feel about mental health care and how I feel about uh, emotional self-care. I mean, you just, you don't get to pick, there's, there's no option to hit pause on your life and like start up again After the revolution, like none of us can be cryogenically frozen alongside Walt Disney and like thawed out after there's socialism, like one, because that, that isn't feasible, but two, because we're the ones who have to build socialism. So if we are human beings in reality, like in space and time, like in you know, historically fixed places, we need to figure out how to be people who are not absolutely beset by, you know, whether it's garden variety, misery, or actual sort of clinical pathology. Um, You know, we need to figure out a way to to not spend, you know, our hopefully, you know, 80 years on the planet, um, uh, totally um, destroyed by that. So that we can be part of a society so that we can be part of movements to build better societies, but also so that we can actually enjoy the, the one life that we get. Um, if we're not oriented to that idea that every human life should be fully experienced and, and fully, fully enjoyed, w- like why are any of us socialists to begin with?
1: And speaking of enjoying life, uh, you know, I had a, a great moment where, you know, the baby, this was like sometime in the past month, where the baby's asleep, this is very rare, <laughs> he's, he's asleep in the other room, and uh, my partner's doing her, like she tries to do her like daily exercises, and I'm sort of curled up on the couch with my tea, and under a blanket, and I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking like, this is perfect, you know? Yeah. yeah. And the baby lasts for a full hour in his nap, And I'm able to get through a good chunk of the book, and I really, uh, you know, for that hour, really got to enjoy life. And of course, I mean, not that the rest of my time with the baby isn't enjoyable, but you know, it has, it has its uh, challenges. And I hope other people who are listening to this will also uh, get some enjoyment from reading your book. Can you tell people where they can access it?
2: Uh, Yeah, they can. They can get it anywhere. Um, if If you're in North America, you can just get it anywhere you would get books. And if you're in the United Kingdom, it is going to be coming out from Legend Press on September 21st. I think is the the launch date in the UK. So it will get a, f- a full uh, post Brexit life as a uh, as a non imported, uh, fully United Kingdom uh, product. And and she won't be Anik Boudreau. She'll be um, Elizabeth Baker, uh, uh, psychologist. Uh, we, we've changed all the uh, all the characters' names have been anglicized. Uh, no, it's it, no. The text is exactly the same. I've never I've never been published in in the UK before, so th- that's very exciting. And uh, uh, so so yeah, it'll be out in the UK in September. But if you're listening in North America, it's available uh, wherever you get books. Great,
1: and anywhere around the world can.
2: Also on e-reader.
1: Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Anyone around the world can get it as an ebook. That's how I read it. And congrats on being published in the UK. Uh, and congrats on the book more generally. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on
2: the podcast. Really great to talk to you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Remember that you can subscribe to us on any podcast app of your choice. Also remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast.
1: If you want to hear more from Charlie, uh, you can actually, he's going to be speaking at an event hosted by the Center for Free Expression at Ryerson University on March 3rd. Uh, He's going to be talking about comedy, free expression and social justice, and we'll include the link to that event in the
0: description. Thanks again for tuning in and uh, we'll see you again soon.